0: Does the vastness of space prove that God does not exist? According to one yahoo.com reporter, it does. But let's find out why this report is an error and why the vastness of space really has little to do with the existence of God on this edition of the Bellator Christi Podcast.
1: You are listening to the Bellator Christi Podcast brought to you by bellatorchristi.com Now join your host, Brian Chilton as we enter the arena of ideas.
2: Bye.
0: Yeah. Taking knowledge and the shield of classic apologetics, while taking Christian truth to the arena of ideas, this is the Bellator Christie podcast, and this is your host for our time together today. Yours truly. Brian Chilton. We thank you for joining us on this uh, November 13th edition of the Bill Tour Christie podcast. We are getting the uh, podcast to you a little later than what we normally do. And uh, part of this is uh, just quite honestly, it's been a very, very busy third quarter of 2017. And uh, my son was—he uh, was actually in a play this uh, this past week. Did a fantastic job with that. Uh, it was uh, the play was called "A Year in the Life of, of, of Frog and Toad," and I'm telling you, he did a wonderful job. His co-star, the uh, lady who played uh, frog, she did a great job as well. Everyone in the in the in the entire cast. And uh, the director, I mean, she—the director—is just absolutely phenomenal. Her and uh, the music teacher, and everyone else who uh, took part in this play, they were just absolutely phenomenal. And so, uh, I tell you, the arts is a very important thing. It's—it's. Uh, it's, um, there are many benefits to to uh, taking part in the performing arts. In fact, I heard one guy uh, who is. Uh, I think he taught theater for a while. He, I, he and I were talking after the play had uh, concluded, and he mentioned the the teamwork uh, that goes into making a mass production play like that. And he even noted that uh, it, it teaches people how to work together. And he says, you know, there are mistakes made. You know, people make mistakes. We're human. We're, we're going to make mistakes. But we 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 plow through those mistakes. We build one another up. We help one another. And uh, that's what we do in a play. And, you know, I think that is, that is a great life lesson to be learned. If we Christians could learn that, you know, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to fumble the ball. We're going to mess up from time to time. But if, instead of crucifying one another, if we could help one another, encourage one another, and build one another up in Christ, oh, my goodness, I tell you, the church would be a whole lot better uh, than what it is. Even today, I want to take a quick commercial break and we're going to be right back with a podcast. We're going to look at an article uh, brought by, brought, uh, by uh, actually, written by one Emily Thomas of uh, Newsweek. This was reported on Yahoo.com, but it was originally posted November 3rd, 2017, in Newsweek. And it says, can science prove God doesn't exist? The vastness of space suggests there is no almighty creator. Let's take a look at this as we compare this and contrast this uh, to what uh, Hugh Ross, an astrophysicist, said, says on the matter uh, right after this quick commercial break. You're listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast.
2: In his lifetime, Charles Spurgeon preached to over 10 million people, and his sermons have been changing millions more ever since. The CSB Spurgeon Study Bible weaves thousands of his words, notes, and excerpts into a rich daily study experience designed to bring to life the words of Charles Spurgeon alongside the words he loved and cherished his entire life.
3: No one would be more surprised than Spurgeon to discover such a thing as the Charles Spurgeon Study Bible. And yet, I think he would be both surprised and delighted. I would say that Spurgeon, as much as any preacher of an earlier era, has impacted my pastoral ministry, not in terms of the actual content itself, as much as the approach to Scripture, as it were, on his knees. It's material that has stood the test of time. And so for it to be encapsulated in this one form uh, is, is just a terrific resource. And I think that what it's going to do is broaden the understanding of the Bible and at the same time give to people an understanding of Spurgeon.
2: With a rich and beautiful design, the Spurgeon Study Bible introduces readers to the insights and wisdom of Spurgeon as a pastoral guide through the Bible that includes his writings, journal entries, lost sermons, and resources not available
3: anywhere else. For someone who's barely heard the name Spurgeon, and perhaps has never even read anything that he wrote, the study Bible is going to be a revelation. Right there, page by page, book by book, they are introduced to Spurgeon at his very best. One of the things that will be immediately attractive to them is the fact that they will see Spurgeon's own handwriting within the prints of the Bible. So that not only did he have his comments, but they have his comments as they were originally written down. It is immediately appealing to the eye as well as, uh, you know, rewarding to the mind. For the student of uh, Scripture and the lover of Spurgeon, is a treasure trove.
2: Throughout his life, Spurgeon gave himself to knowing, loving, and proclaiming the truth of Christ. Each edit and inclusion in the CSB Spurgeon Study Bible follows this passion, that every reader might get into the very heart of the Word of God.
3: There's a certain element in this Study Bible that causes the reader to feel almost that they are inhabiting the time of Spurgeon himself. It's clearly all about the one whom he longs to preach and proclaim. This is the great value that is to be found in the material. I hope that this Study Bible is going to introduce a whole new group of people to Spurgeon himself and to the influence that he had, and that because the heart of man is the same no matter where he finds himself or she finds herself. And Spurgeon's timeliness, indeed his timelessness, is that
2: experience god's word and the legacy of charles spurgeon to find out more visit csbspurgeonstudybible.com
0: Welcome back to the Tour Christie Podcast We thank you for being with us today uh, We are uh, taking a look, of course, at the uh, article That was, that was uh, brought on, uh, originally on Newsweek And shared on uh, Yahoo.com And so we're going to take a look at that here in just a few moments And uh, very odd, very odd um, argument laid forth in this article. It uh, Let me just bring this up. This is found on, uh, if you want to look up the link, it is yahoo.com forward slash news uh, forward slash science dash prove dash God dash dozen doesn't have the T-D-O-E-S-N dash apos dash one one three one one four six two eight dot html <laughs> I'm trying to find a link to am trying to, put, try to post a link on the uh on the uh, website uh, where the where this podcast will be published, but uh, anyhow, a good friend of mine uh, here in the here in the North Carolina area, he posted this to his Facebook account. Uh, the title of this is "Can Science Prove God Doesn't Exist?" Question mark. The vastness of space suggests there is no Almighty Creator, and. Um, just read you a little bit of this and the main premise. Scientists, according to Emily Thomas, the writer from Newsweek, says, scientists now know that the universe contains at least two trillion galaxies. Okay? And we're not going to argue that today. I mean, the universe is huge. You know, I think everyone with, unless you have some of these oddballs out there who claim to be flat earthers, Mm. uh, (laughs) there are some strange folks. To, to be honest, and some of those strange folks are, in fact, claimed to be Christians. So, um, there are some strange folks who claim to be atheists as well. So, I mean, that, uh, they are strange people everywhere, all right? But it's a mind, uh, scrunchingly, she says, big place, very different to the conception of a universe we had in mind when the world's major religions were founded. Now, see, already I don't see... <laughs> I, I don't know that that's provable, okay? Some... some People may have understood the universe to be small. But I don't know that that is universal. Okay. Uh, so do the astronomical discoveries of the last few centuries have implications for religion? Again, I I, hear, I don't see what astronomical discoveries that have been made would do in this regard. There's already a presupposition in the first paragraph before we read anything else There is a major presupposition against the major religions in general that uh, this one Emily Thomas has. Over the last few decades, a new way of arguing for atheism has emerged. Uh, Philosophers of religion uh, such as Michael Martin and Nicholas Everett have asked us to consider the kind of universe we would expect the Christian God to have created and compare it with the universe we actually live in. All right, so already the logic of this is not there. Okay, this is already illogical. We we're, we're we're trying to assume we're trying to compare a universe that has god in it and to a universe that does not have god in it. And what would god have done? Okay, to in order so what what the premise already of this argument is is that Martin and Everett according to Emily Thomas as she has posted this they're claiming to have the mind of God.' They're, they're, they're presupposing what God would do if God exists okay that's what they're doing. They're presupposing what God would have done if he exists. So in other words they're claiming to have the mind of God all right to explain why we need a little theology and then they go through the Christian God's held to be deeply concerned with human beings Genesis 1:27. God created mankind in his own image. We see that. All right, bear with me. I have a phone call here. All right, apologize for that, folks. All right, let's go back here. So, um, the, the, the theology, God created man in his own image. Uh, what is man who would take, take thought of him? Uh, and you crown him with glory and majesty. John three sixteen explains that God gave humans his son out of love for us. Okay, here again, th- this... Uh, this um, anti-religious mentality is now ex- explicitly being focused toward Christianity. Okay? And they, and they argue that this is not a human-oriented universe. Okay. All right, now, let's let's hold on now. If this were not a completely human-oriented universe, then human beings would not exist. And if human beings did not exist, then we would not be here. You would not hear my voice because you wouldn't exist and I wouldn't exist. Okay, so that's not a completely true statement. Just because something may be hostile towards life does not mean that life is not permitted. I mean, you know, <laughs> here again, this, this is claiming knowledge that only a God would know, the only God himself would know. Uh, if um, God is human-oriented, the argument goes, wouldn't you expect him to create a universe in which humans... Feature prominently. Well, and who's to say that we don't? I um, mean, you take a look at Earth. I mean, just because the universe itself is large does not mean uh, that, uh, to be honest, that uh, li- that that, um, that humans are not a featured product. I mean, we're we're taking into account uh, size, okay, and we we take into account a lot of times this this idea that bigger is always better. We take in this ideology that uh, that 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 is exclusively about us, and there may not be other uh, things going on. Okay, so scientists, humans are very small, and space, as Douglas Adams puts it, is really, really big. There again, I don't see any problem uh, with acceptance of god i mean because in that regard if we accept that god is greater than the universe then that means god is even greater than the size of of uh, the universe itself god is grander we believe that god is transcendent beyond the scope of the universe we believe that god is also imminent working in the universe okay so so god may be we for all account and purposes very very big okay scientists estimate that the observable universe is around 93 billion light-years across. The whole universe is at least 250 times as large as the observable universe. This is taking into account that, that we see only a small spectrum of the universe that exists. There's a whole other area of dark energy, dark matter, that we cannot see. Our own planet is 93 million miles away from the sun. Earth's nearest stars, the Alpha Centauri system, are four light years away. That's nearly 25 trillion miles. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, contains anywhere from 100 to 400 billion stars. The observable universe contains around 306 trillion stars. Humans occupy the tiniest fraction of it. The land mass of planet Earth is a drop in the ocean of space. Uh, the universe is also, to paraphrase Adam's, really, really old, perhaps over 13 billion years. Okay, so the universe uh, where the earth sits, uh, a universe where the earth sits near the center. Okay, I'm sorry, that was a picture. Clearly there is a discrepancy, they're going to say, between the kind of universe we would expect a human-oriented God to create and the universe we live in. Again, that is a huge presupposition that, is, that, that would have to actually claim to know what God thinks. And what God knows, and and not even the not even theologians would claim to know the mind of God. What we, we, as um, not, Norman Geisler has put it, we can apprehend uh, certain things about God, but we can never fully comprehend God. Even with the revelation we have been given by uh, by God to us, we don't know everything there is to know about God. So the fact that he goes on to say is atheism is really the simplest reply to this mismatch doesn't mean that other explanations aren't possible. Okay, that's fair. Perhaps God exists, but His motives for not creating humans sooner or on a bigger scale are unknowable. Okay, so they, they agree with that. The divine is, after all, mysterious. They go on to say, and so perhaps the the swaths of space strung with glo- go- uh, gossamer nebulae serve some aesthetic purpose, beauty wrought in on in a inhuman scale, or perhaps God exists but isn't as human oriented as we thought. Again, I, I don't that, that's a presupposition um, the problems with these rival explanations is that as they stand, they are unsatisfying well, well why are they unsatisfying? I mean, again, if, if the universe is completely inhospitable to life then life would not exist so, are there other answers out there? Well, I think that there are. I think that we we look at this from a perspective of where we are looking outward. But consider this, that there is a whole other type of universe on the molecular scale. That you can take things down. I mean, these same scientists many times will talk about quarks and bosons and things that m- comprise atoms and things of this nature. Uh, and and I've even heard a recent study during my PhD intensive recently of research that's being done sh- showing that there is, n- uh, quite honestly, a universe under the floor of, of the uh, of of a forest floor under the forest floor or this whole network of trees as they come together. So again. I don't think this argument is it holds at all because you could easily look down on the other perspective on a microscopic level and find that the vast amounts of information going in that route as well. To to a if a quark uh, were a living thing, we may be we may be seen to be an intelligence that is that is uh, that would have no purpose in creating some of the things that we create. Uh, to so. Again, could a quark know the, the mind of a, of a human being? If if a quark were alive, I don't think it could. Just like I don't think that we could truly know the mind of God in this perspective. So, but there there's another there's another side to this. Hugh Ross has written a book that I highly recommend. It's called uh, Why the Universe Is the Way It Is. Now, some people get in the old Earth, new Earth. Uh, excuse me, old Earth, young Earth debate. Old Earth, old universe, young uh, universe. Debate, uh, and I'm not going to get into that But but Hugh Ross is an old earth creationist He would accept the fact that uh, Yes, the universe is huge He would also accept the fact that uh, He also accept, accepts the notion That the universe is very old Okay, but he also accepts the fact that God exists And he also accepts the the, the creation model We find in Genesis chapter 1 So, he gives several reasons As, why, as for why God would have Created a huge universe as he has. Um, He goes on to say that um, the more astronomers learn about the universe, on page 29, uh, the more astronomers learn about the universe, the more they recognize how remarkable it is that multiple cosmic characteristics that make human life possible also mark the universe visible, knowable, and measurable. Did you catch that? The more astronomers learn about the universe, the more they recognize how remarkable it is that the the multiple cosmic characteristics that make human life possible also make the universe visible, knowable, and measurable. Okay? If, he goes on to say, the universe were any smaller or larger, younger or older, this is coming from an astrophysicist now, Hugh Ross Uh, He earned his Ph.D. from the University of Toronto, founder and president of Reasons to Believe. He says if the universe were any smaller or larger, younger or older brighter or darker, more or less efficient as a radiator, and if human observers were located where most stars and planets reside, the view would be so blocked as to give few, if any, clues about what lies beyond. We would be so blind to the realm in which we live. Okay? So, what about... Folks, I apologize. i got things buzzing and dinging and ringing all over the place. Uh... (laughs) I'm not sure what's going on here, but uh, anyhow, let's let's put this over here. Um, more importantly, no one would ever even be around to see it. He goes on to say, and he talks about this in future chapters. Um, let me look here and see. He gives some he gives some reasons as to why the um, universe is as large as it is. Volume, for instance, the matter of mass. Um, so, so, we'll see here. Visibility is one thing. That's, that's one thing. We see that uh, uh, humans, supersized, humans are present to take advantage of a rare moment in cosmic history, an ideal location in cosmic geography from which to gaze out over the vast expanse of the universe. So, he's saying we're here at the right time. The matter of mass volume gives one indication of the universe's enormity. Dense, uh, mass density gives another. Okay, so we have the right mass in the universe with the right elements to allow human life to be possible, he says. We also have the second reason the universe must be hugely massive to allow for human life is its expansion rate. He says the rate at which the universe expands throughout cosmic history critically depends on its mass density. According to the law of gravity, Ross states, The closer any two massive bodies are to one another, the more powerfully those bodies attract each other. Therefore, the closer various bits and pieces of mass are to one another in the universe, the more effectively they will slow down the universe's expansion. Conversely, the farther apart those bits and pieces are, the less breaking effect, quote-unquote, gravity has on cosmic expansion. Again, if it were any faster... You know, life would not be possible. If it were any slower, life would not be possible. So, he says that there's an exquisite balance. That He says the delicacy of that ratio uh, of, of... Well, let me go back and read this. While stars and planets account for only about 1% of the total ma- uh, mass, uh, matter, excuse me, hence mass, of the universe, even that small percentage must be extraordinarily fine-tuned for life to exist. He says, in reality, the delicacy of that ratio is far more extreme than the sh- than the than an analogy he gives of a ship uh, previously in the book, for the reasons noted above. And if no other density factors influence the expansion of the universe at certain early epochs in cosmic history, its mass density must have been finely tuned as one part in ten to the 60th power to allow for the possible existence of physical life at any time or place within the entirety. Of the universe. I don't know, it sounds to me, reading this, that the universe was constructed to allow life to exist. He goes on to talk about dark matter. In addition to a specific cosmic mass with qu- quantities of protons and neutrons precisely fixed to make life possible, astronomers now recognize that every component that makes up the universe, l- let me repeat this. Every component that makes up the universe, both matter and non-matter, must be present at a specified value or physical life would not exist. I want to go back and read that again because this completely decimates the arguments made in the article we read at the front of the podcast. again, Astronomers now recognize that every component that makes up the universe, both matter and non-matter, must be present at a specified value of phys- or physical life would not exist. Let me read a couple more things, and then we're going to give the conclusion to wrap this up. He says, uh, w- uh, dark energy, much as the same manner as a car, the universe has separate systems for slowing down and speeding up. Gravity functions as the main braking system. During the early era of the universe, before its mass became widely dispersed, gravity effectively applied the brakes on the, on the universe, slowing down its expansion from its initial creative burst. This creation event is familiarly referred to as the Big Bang. The bizarre feature called dark energy... Okay, serves as the acceleration system. Perhaps this quality is best described as a self-stretching property of the cosmic service surface. For the first approximate seven billion years of its existence, again, we're not getting into the old earth, young earth thing. the universe expanded at a decelerating rate. Then, as the components of the universe gradually spread apart, Gravity became progressively weaker in its capacity to slow down the expansion, and dark energy gradually became stronger or more effective in its capacity to accelerate the expansion. Basically saying that dark energy, dark matter, seems to be also fine-tuned to a specified detail to allow life to exist. He goes on to say on page 40, both cosmic mass density and dark energy density hugely impact not only the possibility for human life, but also the possibility for individuals to observe, explore, and understand the universe. That is the answer. The universe is the way it is to allow life to exist and also to allow li- uh, human beings, free agents, you know, people who can observe. To, to observe, explore, and understand the universe around them. Going on, giving the particular laws, he says, and constants of physics that govern the universe, the possibility of life and discovery mandate that the universe be vast in all ways, including volume and mass at the particular epoch during which intelligent life exists. Case closed. Can you hear the mic drop? Game over. So this coming from a Christian astrophysicist, a man who has observed the universe, a man who has, quite honestly, studied the data, saying that the universe has to be this large to allow life to exist and to allow human beings the ability to research and discover And learn more about the universe. Could God have created it in a different fashion. So that the universe was smaller. Yeah he could have. But perhaps maybe to allow us to have. The type of life that we have. It took a large universe. So I would argue as a theologian. As an apologist. The very opposite. You see of what. uh, Of what the. uh, The astrologers were saying. In this article. The astrologers being. Uh, Michael Martin and Nicholas Everett. They were claiming, according to them, that um, that um, atheism is a simpler is, is a simpler answer. I don't think that's right at all. I think theism is a better answer because it would take all of these fine-tuned things to allow life to exist. And they go on to say that uh, the, the problem with these rival explanations is as, as they stand, they are unsatisfying. I disagree. I think it's very satisfying to understand that all of these fine-tuned agents must be precisely in order to allow life to exist as it does. So is the universe hostile to life? Actually, no. Now, that doesn't mean that you can take a rocket ship up into space and, and expect to live but as far as the life we have on earth, everything had to be so finely tuned to the nth degree to allow us to have life as we have it, and to allow us to enjoy the benefit to observe and explore. This, this follows along with a paper I just, recently, I just I re- recently wrote for my Ph.D. intensive, talking about educational philosophy that that God is logical and knowable and God being logical and knowable he created a logical and knowable creation so that logical and knowledgeable creatures could discover both that universe and could have an intimate logical and uh, knowledgeable relationship with the Almighty Creator so folks I would just basically say according to what Hugh Ross said in his book I would have to wholeheartedly agree the universe is the way it is, so that so that you and I can have the lives that we have. Everything matters in this universe, and God has made it so that life could exist. So, in a manner of speaking, it could be said that human beings' life on planet Earth is the centerpiece of the universe. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast. This is Brian Chilton saying God bless, and we'll see you the next time as we step into the arena.
1: expressed on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of bellatorchristi.com or its affiliates. The Bellator Christi podcast is a production of bellatorchristi.com and is protected under Creative Commons copyright. All rights reserved. The theme song is Crucified, written by John and Michaela Lemonese, performed by Crosby Lane, and produced by Mansion Entertainment. We're standing on the ground that for three years we have prayed that will one day be the site of the greatest Christian school in the world. we prayed that way. We believe God gave us this mountain for that purpose. I've said to these young people repeatedly and I say it again to you today, You are the hope of America. When you leave the graduation platform of liberty, I want you to leave it running. Leave it running with a vision burning in your soul. You're gonna change this world for Christ. Don't look around and wonder who it is. Say, God, make it me. Make it me. Because we're training champions. That's a part of the vision. Write the vision, make it plain. We're training champions to change the world.
4: Those words spoken by Dr. Jerry Falwell cast a vision that brought us to this mountain. Those who were around during the early years remember attending convocation in a 3,000 seat tent because no building on campus could hold all the students. Then there was the winter of 1977 when the building they'd been using for classes was scheduled for demolition. Their response was to stand in the snow for two hours, praying. Welcome to Liberty, where we train champions for Christ. Welcome to a world of audacious dreams. A world where strong character is built with grit and grace. A world where men and women go out bravely to fix what's broken. What one man dreamed, his son built. 10 years ago, President Falwell picked up the mantle his father laid down, and the university has been flourishing in ways thousands of faithful dreamers had seen only in their prayers. Our tradition of unwavering faith is their legacy, because you are what they prayed for.
1: Graduates, you will face seemingly insurmountable hardships and obstacles often throughout your career. At times, everything will seem hopeless and every fiber of your being will be screaming for you to quit and give up on your dreams. But persevering in those darkest hours is what separates the winners from the losers. Only if you press on will you achieve greatness. In less than 50 years,
4: 154 students have become 110,000. Missed paydays have become a billion dollar campus, and what began as a preposterous dream has become the largest Christian university in the world. With elite Carnegie status and FBS football, oh, we're coming, and we're coming to win. And we're not leaving our convictions behind. We still have the privilege, the right, And the responsibility to show the world what jesus looks like we still believe that hard work courage and integrity define our faith as much as compassion and kindness we are bold we are innovative we are faithful and diligent we celebrate both our diversity and our unity as one family at liberty the privilege to mentor the next generation of christian leaders is not something we take lightly, because virtues necessary for a praiseworthy life are not built overnight. They require scholars with determination, creativity, and a passion for wisdom. Our faculty have done great things, helped invent hearing devices for the deaf, done groundbreaking research on technology addiction, influenced the way crime labs use DNA analysis, they have written film scores, won Emmys, and made headlines in archaeology, philosophy, and paleontology. But their greatest legacy will be you. We defy the stereotypes that others try to impose on us. Your classmates are directing their own films, interning at NASA, and taking on poverty across the globe. While the world sees champions as only victors, we will reclaim the word and its meaning. We the champions, in order to affirm our tradition of unwavering faith, ignite a passion for wisdom, challenge perspectives, inspire creativity, and pursue knowledge, do resolve to be the voice for the voiceless, bring healing to the hurting, fight for the oppressed, defend freedom, defy stereotypes, and follow God's calling wherever it may lead. It is who we are, it's what we stand for, It always has been and always will be.
0: To learn more about Liberty University, go to liberty.edu.